0: Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. SUPEX, the Startup Expo, North America's premier startup conference, is March 6 and 7, 2017, in sunny Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Affordably priced. Supex is a two-day international conference featuring workshops, panels, speeches, a $50,000 startup competition, and over 100 exhibitors. For more information, go to sup-x.org. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Rachel Braun Sherrill. She's a business builder, entrepreneur, and vagapreneur. Rachel, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. You, you've done... A ton of work kind of in well a bunch of spaces and you're really big in kind of the a bunch of female health companies but maybe before we kind of dive into exactly what you're doing now and kind of what you've done in the past let's kind of get get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up
1: okay I was uh, born in Detroit okay but uh, there's nothing about me anymore that's terribly Midwestern. I was raised (laughs) in the Northeast. Um, I've lived in New Jersey for a lot of my life, raised my family here for um, most of my kids' lives, but I've lived in Connecticut, Pennsylvania, California, North Carolina, New York. Um, So I've been around a bit and uh, traveled quite a bit, but definitely if you you can tell from my speaking and my pacing and everything else that my
0: temperament is very Northeastern. (laughs) That's awesome. So what made you kind of finally decide to move, move kind of in the Northeast and stay in the Northeast?
1: I'm familiar with it. I grew up here and most importantly, my my family was here. My kids were raised with four grandparents, 10 cousins, you know, lots of aunts and uncles and a, a very wonderful community. So that was the reason that We settled here because most of our family was here, and it was just a nice place to be. I happen to really love the changing of the seasons, Sure. so I'm one of the few people, generally, who loves the cold. I also love the rain. I'm happy in spring or summer also, but there's just a lot to do, and it's a centrally located place to conduct my work and personal life so I can get anywhere from here.
0: Yeah, sure. No, that makes sense. Like you're, you're in a big hub city that you could basically fly anywhere or people are always coming to you, right? Like,
1: yes, exactly. Not quite as much as when I lived in Northern California. When you live in Northern California, you constantly have guests because everybody wants to come there. Sure, Um, Sure. And I love living out there.
0: Sure. No, that that's great. So you've been to kind of some big universities. You went to Duke University. What did you take there, and what made you decide to take that? Uh,
1: I studied psychology and human development undergrad, and I studied that because I thought I was going to be a psychiatrist. Uh, okay. That ha- that was until I did an internship at a mental hospital um, in Butner, North Carolina, and realized that uh, that wasn't what I, <laughs> I wanted to do, um, that there were a lot of things that I didn't have any of the skills to deal with, traumatic brain injuries and, you know, really, really serious um, challenges. Uh, and takes a special person to do that kind of thing, and I just thought that that's not where my talents would be best used. And the human development was really a function of, I think, part of what I do now. It's a combination of psychological, social, and physiological systems that impact how we think, how we behave, how we make decisions, and the integration of those three. Uh, My mom was a therapist, and so that was something that I was always really interested in, and my dad spent his whole career in corporate America, and I think I ultimately did a combination because my communication skills have been something that have been critical to everything that I've done, but I've done it in the context of building businesses.
0: Sure. And and then you also went to Stanford to get your MBA, correct?
1: Yes, which I loved, absolutely loved. It was the greatest part of my entire educational experience and met fascinating people and was exposed to fascinating concepts and really learned there about the concept of entrepreneurship. Even though I did not start executing, I went to a very large company right after business school. Uh, I worked at J&J which I loved, and where I built a lot of relationships that had an impact on my future career, but with each successive choice that I've made, I've become more and more of my own boss, so I decided at some point early in my career that I wanted to be in charge of my financial future, and I looked at being an entrepreneur as the best way to do that.
0: Okay, and so what, at what point did you, get, you decide to co-found kind of Spark Solutions, and, and what exactly is Spark.
1: So Spark is a consultancy marketing strategy that's really focused on growth. And when I talk about growth, I mean top-line revenue growth. So what do I need to do or say or behave or offer to get my customers, consumers patients, doctors, whoever is the person who's engaging in a transaction, how do I get them to do more of what I need to do to grow my business? How do I get them to buy more services? How do I get them to recommend my products? How do I get them to add my product to their regimen? And that could be in a number of different forms. It could be repositioning. It could be communication. It could be line extension, global extension, partnership, acquisition, you name it, but all around, how do I drive my business growth? And I joined, I I created Spark with my business partner, Mary Ench, who's been my partner for almost 20 years, my business partner for 20 years. And at the time, I was working with her. I was an employee of a company, and she was freelancing. And I said, I'd really love to work with a person of this caliber and this quality. And I still feel that way 20 years later. So I'm very lucky in that regard. And what happened was working for someone else, I was had no control over my own schedule at all sure and i remember thinking in 1994 actually excuse me i remember thinking in 1995 96 that if someone were paying me 10 million dollars a year which they weren't at that time sure that the job the job the benefits and the costs were not in line okay so that was the first time i thought about doing something that I designed, and Mary was the right person to design it with. She had already had some experience as an entrepreneur, and from the moment we met and decided to form Spark, we were off to the races. Okay. A lot of the people that served as our client base for many, many years, as I said, I was trained at J&J, and Mary was trained at Richardson Vicks, and so over the past decades... Our clients are people that we met when we worked there as, an employ- as employees or when we consulted there, and often the most important part of our business has been the relationships we built and people take us when they get promoted and they bring us when they go to a new company or have a new opportunity.
0: No, I, I think that's actually... You brought up something really interesting there, Like, and it, and it resonates with me um, like I've kind of been in this software kind of creative director design tech space for, for a number of years. And I've spent some time in my career at like, um, you know, marketing kind of agencies and yeah, I like put aside kind of the work that I was doing there. I met so many really great people at those companies that like, I still do stuff with today. And just like you said, kind of as people move on from those companies or go start their own thing or whatever, There's so many relationships and I kind of almost recommend to people starting out in their kind of design career or even just anything that could, you know, you could do it like a marketing agency, go there and work for somebody else for even like a year or two because you will get so many really good connections that you know, even a decade later, you know, I still talk to some of these people, right? And I was, and actually we're doing a project with one of the companies I used to work at now, right? And so it's interesting how even a decade later, those relationships I formed still impact me. And it sounds like you've had a similar experience.
1: Absolutely. And it's the relationships, it's the skill development, it's the ability to bounce things off of people. It's creating a network that could be useful to you and to whom you could be useful um, as you grow in your career. And it also gave us the foundation. Mary and I, in 2008, when the financial bottom was falling out of the market, decided that we were going to buy an asset, which is when we first became vagpreneurs, and we were raising money in Silicon Valley. And the fact that we had these relationships and these experiences and had some credibility from the educational institutions that we had been fortunate enough to be educated in. That also had a huge impact on our ability to get people's attention, um, communicate the credibility that we had worked for, uh, and made it believable, and ultimately to raise you know, millions of dollars in venture capital to buy this asset and grow a business.
0: Sure, no, I love that. And, and when we originally talked a while ago, you have some interesting kind of stories around being a female and trying to raise money in the valley, which, you know, it's it's hard today. I can't even imagine how much harder it was in 2008.
1: Yeah, and it, although it's not that many years ago, I think the, the world is somewhat different. But we started out with a couple of challenges. First of all, it was, you know, the recession and, sure. you know, 2008. People were hanging on to their money and were not interested in in terribly risky things. Number two, we were two women raising money, and you know from all the statistics that by definition that lowers your percentage of actually leaving a room with money. Two, they looked at us as uh, first-time entrepreneurs for a product company, even though we had both had operating roles in product companies, but we had built our our entrepreneurial experience uh, in a service business. And the third was that we were talking about vaginas. So when you put those all together, um, it made for quite a number of interesting conversations. Uh, And it felt a little bit like I was stepping back in time or to a very dysfunctional, you know, middle school locker room. And one of the experiences that we had is we went out to Silicon Valley and we had 13 meetings with venture capitalists over a two-day period. Wow, that's a lot. Yes, from a venture capital (laughs) perspective, when you're sitting in the investor seat, my sense is that they do believe that they're very differentiated and they have a different investment thesis and would be a different kind of partner. When you're, as an entrepreneur, I'll speak for myself, when you go in and you're making one presentation after another, the differences in their styles are not as apparent as, as probably what they perceive. But in any case, we wound up, obviously, mostly in rooms with um, men who were middle-aged, which is just a statement of fact. And, you know, I certainly was, depending on if you call over 40 middle-aged. And we go into the first meeting, and we knew a lot about the category, obviously, and about the space. And Mary and I had spent our careers building businesses Uh, that affect women, as we say, from the tops of their heads to the tips of their toes, hair care, skin care, psoriasis, fertility, menopause, menstruation, foot fungus, you name it. Um, From the uh, glamorous to the oh-not-so-glamorous. So we go into the first meeting, and one of the gentleman partners in the room says, well, how is this different from Viagra? Because the product was a patented blend of botanical oils and extracts that was clinically proven to increase arousal, desire, and satisfaction topically applied. And any time a new product comes out that looks like it's going to help women's sexual response, they refer to it as the female Viagra. So Viagra is always the go-to analog that people talk about in, in their first conversation. So the first person says, how is this like Viagra? And so we go into a fairly detailed description about how viagra works as a vasodilator and increases the blood flow and while this product had some blood flow increasing capabilities that wasn't the beginning and the end of the story for female response you know on and on and on and you know i saw their eyes start to glaze over and you know didn't leave that meeting with any money the second meeting the first question we got was i can see from your clinical studies that this talks about increased satisfaction how does this help his satisfaction? And so I gave a very detailed answer about how the, the surveys that we did really focused on women's satisfaction and that his satisfaction, based on what we could tell, was a result of the fact that his partner had a better experience or he felt um, more accomplished as a partner. And the clinical studies in this case were done with um, heterosexual couples in long-term relationships sure so again we have this sort of you know blank stare not a huge amount of energy in the room partially i think because of where the questions went but also because of all the other factors in the context that i explained a bit earlier so in between the second and the third one i mary and i had a huddle and i said listen we gotta try something different you know, we're going to have 11 more meetings and we're not going to raise any money. We can't seem to get them onto the topic of what the product does and what the business is. Sure. And we're very much mired in sort of this awkward conversation about sex and sexuality and genitals and words that we're very comfortable saying, but the people in the room weren't terribly comfortable in saying. Sure. So we go into the third one and... For whatever reason, not that it's totally relevant, I never have any cash in my wallet. I do everything with credit cards, and I track things, and so I generally don't have a lot of cash. For some reason, I had a $100 bill in my wallet, and I think it might have been some sort of divine intervention. So I take out the $100 bill, and I smack it on the table, and I I thought I paused for dramatic effect, and I said, here's a $100 bill. You know, people nod. Yeah, I can see that's a $100 bill. Where is she going with this? Sure. And I said, if anyone asks us a question about the category that we can't answer or makes a sexual innuendo, which we are embarrassed by, or says anything that makes us blush or feel uncomfortable, this $100 is yours. Interesting. Pause again. I said, she likes it more. She wants to have it more. Let's talk about the business model.
0: Sure.
1: And, you know, there was a pause and an exhale and the energy changed because what that communicated, it turns out, was that I was not going to be the least bit comfortable and Mary was not going to be the least bit uncomfortable talking about the category and that we were very prepared to get away from the titillating idea of talking about sexual arousal and talk about this idea in the context of a huge market opportunity and a huge business opportunity. Sure. And it was sort of at that moment that we realized that we were very well prepared to do this because we were interested and capable in talking about this as a business, even when you're talking about a product that's for vaginas and other words that most venture capitalists don't like to say in a meeting. Certainly, they don't like to hear it you know, 20 times, but that's what our business was. Sure. And we were unapologetic about it, and we had a great product that worked, that had no side effects, that was really changing women's lives. So we we wanted to shatter from the rooftops and just needed to create an environment where we were able to do that.
0: Sure. No, and I love that. Like, I, I think even just like that story to people where you guys are going into an industry that at least that point in time wasn't really getting funding or or at least like nowadays you start seeing more and more commercials for this stuff even just on like regular kind of during primetime television but at that time none of this stuff was even really talked about right and i think we need people like yourself and your partner mary that are willing to kind of push people's boundaries in industries that you know you can make money selling products and, and creating startups around these industries that aren't maybe traditionally being funded, right? And I love the fact that you guys, you know, did that and came out with a different angle and kind of put money literally on the table and saying like, okay, let's go. Are we going to talk business or not, right? Because Right,
1: exactly. We're here to talk business. Exactly. One of the aspects of of talking about this market, which is so fascinating. And I'm working on a book right now called Orgasmic Leadership, which is basically sharing my experiences and interviewing dozens of other people who have created businesses in this broadly defined space of female health, female wellness, and female sexual health. Um, Just talking about the particular challenges that they face and the creative solutions that they've come up with to overcome them. So, you know, surprisingly, there are still plenty of media outlets where you can't advertise products like this. You know, most networks, most cable stations, um, certainly a lot of social media sites, because even if you're talking about it in an appropriate way, you get flagged as being inappropriate or adult content. Sure. Sure. What was fascinating to us as we were launching this business, and things have changed. There are a lot of amazing entrepreneurs doing great things in this space that they've now dubbed FemTech, which broadly describes businesses that are looking at different distribution models, different kinds of products, different ways to deliver products and services, for arousal, for menstruation, for enhancing fertility, for pregnancy monitoring, you name it, anything in and around a woman's reproductive and sexual health. So there are a lot more people talking about it, a lot more people raising money, a lot more people uh, making terrific inroads. When we were doing this, and I'll take you back to 2010, 90%, 95% of the network's all of the networks, 99% of the cable stations, radio stations, and websites wouldn't take our money.
0: Interesting. Meaning
1: we would say, we have money that we want to give you to advertise our product, and they would say no. And this is during a time, when, the time we're still in, where we're advertising four hour erections, yeah. which there's nothing wrong with, but we're advertising those at 5 p.m. on CBS during the Super Bowl. Yet talking about female response and arousal and, you know, all things that we thought were fabulous you know, wasn't allowed. And so one of the ways we built the business was through a fairly creative communication and PR strategy, which said, well, if people won't let us buy media, we're going to earn it. There has to be a story behind the disparity between men and women's advertising. And so in 2010, we were able to get that story in the New York Times and then on Nightline, which turns out a lot of people in our Target watch, and sure. then on Good Morning America and The View, and then in most every major paper and and online property, you know, in the country. But it was around what we thought was a clever way to say, we can't pay for it, we're going to get your attention anyway.
0: Sure. but But I also love that, right? Because... It's the thing that's interesting is there's such a weird kind of dynamic between like you can show like complete video game violence and, and things, and that's totally fine during the day. But then like certain other things are totally unacceptable. Right. And it's, it's always been. And there s-
1: don't seem to be universally applied standards.
0: Totally. It, it That's always kind of fascinated me. Right. Like it doesn't really make any sense, but because yeah.
1: there's a lot, a lot of, Sexual content—it's not—it's not that there's no one showing sexual content. A lot of folks are very comfortable showing, you know, disease.
0: Sure. Yep.
1: And and the other spectrum is porn. So yeah. it's not that there's not an appetite for these kinds of things um, on lots of media channels. But this idea where we started our commercial with a talking head, a woman was saying women are talking about something they've been thinking about for a long time, wanting more sexual satisfaction. We didn't show any people simulating sexual activity. We didn't mention any body parts. It was fairly benign. Sure. And by the time they asked us to take out the word sex, sexuality, sexually, arousal, for a sexual arousal product, you know, you could be talking about q-tips by the time you're done taking out all the
0: descriptors interesting yeah no that's that's fascinating to me so i'm curious to dive a little bit deeper into kind of what do you guys do for your your clients at kind of spark because you you obviously kind of you seem to have like you're doing your own kind of stuff and then you're also helping brands and companies and and like walk me through kind of the whole kind of gamut of things that you guys kind of cover with Spark.
1: Okay, so we luckily have had the breadth of experience where we've worked in large companies, consulted two large companies, and worked in small companies and consulted two small companies. So what I'm really focused on now is startups in the female health and wellness
0: space. Got you.
1: So define our universe that way. We've done a ton of corporate work Um, in the past. Lots of the folks we work with are people who came from these large companies and have branched out and and seen a need. And what I really focus on is helping them build the business. And that could mean any number of different things. It could be identifying vendor partnerships. It could be finding folks to redesign their packaging. It could be getting smarter about targeting who the right consumer is and how we reach him or her and through what channels. So it's all around creating the story and executing to drive a transaction. We're very pragmatic in the sense that my general philosophy is that a company that isn't working towards generating revenue is an expensive hobby. That doesn't mean you're generating revenue from day one, but ultimately, in my mind, the goal of a business is to generate revenue. You can decide what you want to do with that revenue after the fact, and if you want to give a percentage of it back to the world to help other people, which so many female entrepreneurs are doing now, which is amazing. Um, to pay your people, to build new office space, whatever the case may be, you need to have some financial power and financial stability to be able to do that. So I'm always focused on what do we need to do to increase the revenue? Do we need to reposition the product? Do we need to create it and communicate about it in a different way? Do we need a new advertising strategy? Do we need to revamp our social media? Do we need a better supplier partner? Do we need to find an online property where people who would most likely be interested in this are already going? One of the things that I think every entrepreneur learns very early on is that the adage, if you build it, they will come might be true in Field of Dreams at the movie, but it's not <laughs> true in business. You have to motivate people and give them a reason to come. And you have to give them a reason to come to where you are, whether it's your storefront online or at retail, whether it's through your medical plan, wherever they get access to your products and services, you're often competing with a lot of other choices. Sure. And when you're creating new categories, which we have done, you have a, a different challenge, which is creating the vocabulary.
0: Yeah, very In much that so. space,
1: so when we were, you know, when we work in female sexual health, and again, I would say there's been a fairly transformative change in the number of businesses doing this over the past couple of years, two to three years, which are which is dramatically different from the pace, you know, seven or eight years ago.
0: Sure.
1: That the language that was created was created by male sexuality. We were created by Viagra, Levitra, and Cialis, bigger, longer, stronger, for sure. our erections. You know, women, from all the work that we've done with women, and we've worked with thousands and thousands of women over the course of our careers in building businesses, women generally don't think about or talk about sex or intimacy as a performance activity.
0: Okay, interesting. So yeah. the
1: language that's used that's amazingly meaningful and based on, you know, billions of dollars of sales, very motivating to men, doesn't necessarily work for women. Sure. And you see, if you look at the, the sort of development and progression of the ads for the ED drugs, they went from very male-focused and they're getting more and more about relationship and experience, because the performance piece really isn't consistent with how at least in my experience and all the research that I've been a part of and all the research that I've seen uh, does isn't consistent with how women think about it and talk about it.
0: Got you. Yeah, that that makes total sense. And I but I also think that it takes people like yourself and your partner Mary to actually like push this stuff in into society, right? And and create these new categories and get it in front of these big kind of companies and media outlets, right? And um, you've been able to do that, right? And I think that's inspiring to not only just kind of females, I think even just like males as well, right? I don't I don't see why it can inspire kind of both genders.
1: Absolutely. I don't think it's gender specific. One of the things that is interesting in my observation and and working on this book and speaking with all these business leaders and entrepreneurs in this space, is you absolutely start with a business interest or solving a problem. And there's a lot written about the fact that women tend to build companies around finding solutions to problems that haven't been solved.
0: Sure. Okay.
1: But one of the things that happens, and I really was focused on this because I wanted to understand it, is for me, I went into this space for business reasons. Sure. Sure but when you see the impact that it has on people and you see how hard the road is, you become passionate, but not necessarily in, I'm emotional and frustrated, but you, you are even more driven, or at least I was, and I, the many the people I speak to are even more driven to sort of get this boulder up this mountain because you know how important and meaningful it is. Sure. One of the comments that I hear frequently from other entrepreneurs in this space who go in to raise money, is there someone in the room who said, you know, this is a niche opportunity? Well, anything that affects 50% of the population, (laughs) in my definition of niche, isn't a niche.
0: Sure.
1: Or they'll see things like, I'll give you an example. You talk about, even talking about arousal, if the people in the room can't imagine or fathom or don't want to face the fact that this could be an issue in their own relationship, if they're not comfortable personalizing it, and if they do personalize it, they decide it's not an issue, they say it's not a market opportunity. When you compare that, staying in sort of the same space with fertility, if you walk into a meeting and there's one guy in the room who struggled in his relationship with trying to have a baby Sure. All of a sudden, he sees the need in a much greater way than he could see it if it's just a problem that seems to affect just women.
0: You you bring up something interesting there because, like, I just, well, my daughter's, like, just over two now, and my wife's expecting our second um, in the oh, next couple of months. Oh, yeah, congratulations. That's thanks. exciting. But the thing that I'm trying to get across um, and that why I gave you that kind of bit of backstory is just what what I found really interesting about, this like right after you have your first child at least in my experience there's so many things that people especially kind of like older people are are will, like they're willing to have kind of conversations about anything with you but before i had a child I, there were certain things that like we never talked about it was just like totally taboo and there was even things even just like within our friend group where None of that stuff ever, like, was talked about. And then you brought up something kind of, like, fertility. And we had some close friends that struggled with that. And they ended up, you know, being able to have kids through a bunch of kind of different treatments and whatnot. But it was something that, like, nobody ever talked about until, like, a bunch of us started having kids. And I always thought that was kind of really fascinating to me that there was these, like, topics that are obviously, like, on people's minds since they were born or, you know, like my daughter has like dolls and little, like she's a bait, like all this stuff's kind of like, we kind of just dodge it. Right. And then the second you have like a child, everything's kind of totally fine to talk about with anybody at kind of any age where before it was like taboo to certain people. And that always kind of fascinated me. Do you find it interesting?
1: So when we talk to young women, I do a lot of young students, I do a lot of teaching at the college and business school level on leadership and entrepreneurship. Sure. Um, And so when we say, in my experience, this is one of the few categories, arousal or sexual satisfaction, that women don't talk about, you know, it's not a kind of topic you can talk about with your mom or your spouse or your friend, I always get pushback. And I say very clearly, this is a topic you probably talk a lot about in college. But what happens when you're in a long-term, more permanent relationship is it's seen as very disloyal. So the example I always give is if you and I are friends and I confide something in you about my sex life and I say, well, you know, my husband used to do this thing where he hung from the chandelier and did this cool trick and now he doesn't do it anymore, we could be out to dinner or at the movies the next day and now I've shared something very intimate and revealed something that almost feels inappropriate. So
0: sure. that's
1: what we hear and what the research says is that as people get older and are in more committed relationships. And again, there's exceptions to every rule, and there's sure. whole communities and large populations of people who wouldn't agree with this. But I'm talking about whatever is that proverbial normal. Sure. You're not talking to your mom nope. or your brother about problems you have in the bedroom. Only three to five percent of obstetricians and gynecologists. Talk to their patients about satisfaction. Okay, They'll ask, Are you having any pain during intimacy? They'll ask about fertility, menopause, menstruation, sexual disease transmission. But even they are not asking, for the most part, uh, the majority of the time, about Are you having a satisfying sex life? I got you. And what's always astounding to people is that there's plenty of research about how genuinely good for you sex is on a number of different dimensions. Sure. And there's research that says, and I'm happy to share this great article um, <laughs> called <laughs> The Eighth sure. Wonder of the World about all the different ways it, it's good for you. Um, and I'm not proselytizing. I'm reporting on data that actually exists. Sure. You know, people who have an active, engaged,
0: intimate life live longer, better, healthier lives. Sure. Yeah, I've seen. There's, I, I think like... And it sounds kind of stupid, but I, I think, like, even just, like, people posting those types of articles on, like, Facebook, for example, like, you see a lot of that stuff kind of come through your feed sometimes, right? And I think, I'd be curious to know how many people actually click on those, but I I think in a lot of cases, that stuff just seems to kind of make it into these media forms that the general population, well, I, I would say the general population has a Facebook account, right? So. You can't tell me that they don't see these articles at least a couple of times a year. Come come across their feed, right? But a lot of
1: the products where you would get you where you would advertise and provide information about what the product does or what the what it how it makes you feel and whether or not you want to try it and where you can get it, you can't advertise on Ah, Facebook. Ah,
0: that's the disconnect. Okay, yeah. So I remember
1: when we were we were advertising on Facebook for three weeks amazing, amazing results, and then, you know, Facebook says, actually, no one says it to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, you know, can't do this anymore. Uh, and there, okay. again, this is an area where there's been huge, huge progress, but again, it doesn't affect all aspects. The arousal products and the ones around satisfaction still have some trouble. Um, the ones about around menstruation or period panties or different distribution models for sanitary protection, those seem to have less of a problem now. And a large part of that is because there's a couple of really spectacularly dynamic entrepreneurs who have pushed that conversation forward. But the arousal piece um, is still quite hard.
0: Got you. Yeah, because you can, like even just going to the grocery store, you can start seeing some more of these products just showing up on the shelves at a store where – you'd probably have to go to a specialty store to get some of this stuff in the past.
1: Right. And we had distribution for our product in the world's leading retailer. Okay. And I don't know if you're familiar, at the end of a commercial, you can tag it and say, available in your local, and name yeah, it, yeah, name yeah, a yeah, chain. Yeah.
0: Sure. Okay. Yeah.
1: So we had product in 2,000 outlets of this particular store, and they sure. said, well... We're happy to have it. People are buying it, but don't tag our name in any of your ads.
0: Oh, interesting. Because we're
1: happy for people to buy it, but you know what? We're really not comfortable talking about it. You know, talk about a disconnect.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because you're right because, like, I don't know, like, the one that obviously this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, so I, I think it's fair to mention, like, if you, I just, like, CLR came to mind, right? And, like, after the end of the commercial, they list, like, 20 places you can buy it. Mm-hmm. So that's shocking to me that it's fine for like something like a product that has, like obviously does you know, treats rust and whatever else. But like it's crazy that they tell you not to do that when it's totally fine in a completely different space. Right. Mm. And when what's what's
1: amazing about any of these products, and I've seen this working in arousal products, menstrual products, fertility, when you are able to get the message across through the right vehicle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the vehicle, the media vehicle is different depending, obviously, on the message. Mm -hmm. When you're able to get the message across on the right vehicle, people are interested. So, you know, I had mentioned that we were able to get the product on Nightline, and I did not know how many people, 35 plus, in committed relationships, who is our defined, you know, core demo, watch Nightline. Sure. We got this product on Nightline, and we were interviewed about why it was so difficult to get advertising and in that forum on a news show we were able to talk about what the product did and how it worked and the response from a sales perspective an interest and a sales perspective was amazing because when you're able to deliver the message again through a vehicle in the context of, of of a message that's meaningful if you figured that out people are interested I mean, these products are being developed because they meet lots of people's needs, not one or two people's needs. Sure. And if you're able to advertise on Facebook and and use other aspects of social media to get your message across and, and advertise on radio and websites, you know, that's that's amazing. Sure. But that's an
0: if for some
1: of these products.
0: I got you. But and and you've you uh, you mentioned Nightline, but you've also had been featured in a bunch of other kind of big media outlets. I I know you mentioned kind of the New York Times, but and like, but you've been on like ABC News and CBS and Oprah radio and Fox News and MSNBC like I'm and Forbes, and like you've been on these big media outlets, right? So yeah, at least these companies are starting to embrace it. They might not be there. A hundred percent, and like you said, maybe some of the traditional kind of FM channels and maybe and sites aren't really necessarily a hundred percent there yet. But it's but starting to. But there's a lot, a lot of progress. Absolutely, right? Which there's is a awesome. lot of progress. And it's great that you're still kind of pushing forward, right? And you're still promoting this stuff and and kind of pushing that boundary and people kind of out of their comfort zone, right?
1: absolutely and and one of my objectives is not necessarily to put people out of their comfort zone but to give them an opportunity to hear something or have a conversation about something that they might not be talking about our one of our taglines was you know join the con- start the conversation join the conversation and if you look at a lot of these businesses many 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 of these businesses use a similar kind of tagline because the most important piece is this idea of having a conversation, just like in any category where you were going to make an investment of time or money. sure, You'd want to know about what your options were. You would want to know what the benefits were. You would want to know what the cost was.
0: Sure. But I I also think, though, that, and and I'm speaking from my, my own personal opinion here, that like, I need to be pushed out of my comfort zone on anything to, like, grow mm-hmm. as a human being. It doesn't even really matter what it is about. It just, for me, and part of the reason I started doing the radio shows, because I feared public speaking. And so, no better way to push yourself out of your comfort zone. In, wow, good just for like, you. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. But, so for me, it's like, and I think a lot of people in society, male, female, doesn't matter where on the planet you're from, race, religion, it doesn't really matter to me. I I think a lot of people need to be pushed out of their comfort zone to grow as a human being. And I think, at least for me, that's always been super important. And I try to stress that to others, right? And so one, one of the main reasons which appealed to me when kind of Bob put us in touch was, you know, you're obviously kind of doing something similar, right? And I haven't, I've had only kind of one other person in kind of your space um, in the past on the show where we're talking about something that maybe will push others out of their comfort zone. And I like having people like yourself that are willing to openly talk about this stuff and hopefully push people out of their comfort zone so they can have the conversation.
1: And I'm always, I'm like you, I'm always interested in learning something and, and talking to someone who has perspectives and experience that I don't because I just think it energizes me and influences me and gives me more dimension as a thinker and a totally. leader, and a person. Totally. But I don't, you know, that's not for everybody. Some people can only buy, if you put it back in the context of business, can only buy in the context of a space that they're comfortable in, and we see plenty of examples of that.
0: Sure. No, that's fair. I, I guess it's just, I don't know. I I just, I guess I, that for me just wouldn't work. Like, and maybe that's just how I'm, like, wired internally, right? Like, I need right. to... I need that, right? To almost feel fulfilled in, in some ways, right? Well, you're my kind of customer. Yeah, well, f- <laughs> fair, I guess, right? No, and, and that's great. So that, no, that that's great. So we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So do you maybe want to kind of close with where people can get more information about yourself and uh, Spark?
1: Sure. So we have a website, Spark Solutions for Growth, or you could find me on Twitter and LinkedIn under Rachel braun Sherrill and under Spark. And we do a lot of speaking and writing and have a lot of articles about uh, female health. So we're constantly talking about this and working with companies in the space.
0: Sure. And are you planning on being at the Startup Expo in uh, March?
1: Yes, I am. Actually, I'm delighted that uh, Bob Fitz, who's organizing it, has given me the opportunity to give one of the keynote speeches about finding your leadership voice. That's great. which was something that I had to learn or revise or refine as I went from running regular businesses to running female sexual health businesses because as I said the some of the communication skills required you know were a bit different.
0: Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. So well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you, and have a wonderful day.
0: <laughs> Thanks. Talk soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com, and keep them in the future.